Sorry. Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms, the book of Psalms, Psalm number 23. We're going to continue our study through this wonderful passage of Scripture. We began last week by looking at the first two verses, specifically focusing on the picture of the Lord as our shepherd and the truths that are indicated by that language. And we noted that the text doesn't merely say that God is our shepherd. It says that Yahweh, the eternal self-sufficient God of Israel, is our shepherd. And we noted also how the New Testament further fills out how Jesus Christ specifically is called our good shepherd. We saw from the Gospel of John that Jesus is the good shepherd in three ways. First, he knows his sheep. He intimately knows each and every one of his sheep with all of their problems, with all of their foibles, and yet he still loves them and makes them a part of his flock. Secondly, he feeds his sheep. He feeds them by giving them heavenly, spiritual food, the food of his own body and blood. That is, he gives them the nourishment of his life for theirs and his death in the place of theirs. And third, Jesus cares for His sheep. He guides them. He directs them. He provides for them. He lays down His own life for them. And so Jesus really is our Good Shepherd. And so today we'll continue to look at the Lord as our Shepherd, specifically how He restores us when we're overturned by sin. And how His fear-scattering presence in the midst of dark valleys really turns times of evil. Those valleys into instruments of our very good. So let's read together the entirety of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, our our Lord, our shepherd, we ask that you would feed your flock this morning. We ask that you would nourish us, that we would dine upon heavenly food, feasting upon the body and blood of Christ itself that was shed for our salvation. We ask that you would bring in those that are outside of your sheepfold, bring them into your flock, and that in all things you would be made great. In Christ's name, amen. The first thing that I would like for us to think about this morning is the Good Shepherd's restoration. The Good Shepherd's restoration. Beginning with verse 3, our text says that the Lord our shepherd restores my soul. We could translate it even, he restores or refreshes my life. 
It's even the word for converts. He changes. It's a wonderful statement. But you might be asking yourself, David, if your Lord is such a wonderful shepherd, then why do any of his sheep need to be restored? Wouldn't he take care of them in the first place? Could God's shepherding be so negligent and so haphazard that any of his flock would get into a position of distress, so despairing that they need restoration? Well, the rest of the Bible makes clear that the members of the Lord's flock often get themselves into distressing situations. The author of this psalm knows very well about the feeling um, of being cut off from the shepherd. In Psalm 42, David cries out, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? David knew what it was to be a disturbed sheep that felt far from his shepherd. And significantly for our theme today, there's a work called A Shepherd's Look at the 23rd Psalm. It's a spiritual classic written by Philip Keller. I highly encourage you to read it. He teaches us that the English phrase cast down, or a cast down, Sheep is actually shepherd's language for a sheep that has been turned over on its back and can't get back up on its own. Imagine the pathetic picture, a sheep that's flipped over, it's waving its legs around, it's frantically struggling, trying to right itself, but it can't figure it out. It's not just a little comical, it's also tragic. Because if the, sheep's, if the shepherd doesn't arrive soon, the sheep will die. He needs to be flipped over, he needs to be restored. He needs to be restored to a proper balance, a proper status, if he's going to live and thrive among the flock. And there's a warning there for us. You see, these sheep get into dangerous situations of being cast down, of being flipped over for several common reasons. Keller tells us that it's because the sheep sometimes are looking for the softest, greenest place to sit, the most comfortable little hallow the place to lay down. Or sometimes the sheep has too much wool and it's unable to roll itself back over. The wool is overgrown, it's full of mud, it's full of debris, it's making it easy for it to be toppled over and need to be restored. Or sometimes the sheep is too fat, making it easy for it to be cast down. Fat sheep are less productive, they're less agile, they're, they're more prone to being stuck on their own backs and unable to extricate themselves. And many of us can relate to such sheep. Sometimes we're tempted to find the most comfortable, cozy places, seeking to lay down in the most relaxed positions. We can think spiritually that we can just coast. We've made it. We can just relax. We can put our guard down. We don't want to do anything too strenuous for God. Nothing that would be, make us too uncomfortable. Where's the easiest spot for me to find so I can sit there and not be bothered? Before long, we find ourselves toppled over. Or we're like the overly woolen sheep whose wool is caked and matted with much debris. We've collected all sorts of worldly habits and baggage. We've collected sinful patterns that we've been carrying for so long, we don't even remember what it's like to be without them. And before long, our extra weight has turned us over, and sin has left us helpless, laying on our backs, exposed. Or we're like the overweight sheep. We're spiritually sluggish. We've been dining on a 
diet of overindulgence. We're unable to pray for more than 10 seconds without distraction. We can't remember the last time we had a consistent pattern with the Lord. See, we've been blessed with green pastures thus far in this life, but the pastures have tempted us to forget the lean times and to rely upon ourselves and upon the green pastures rather than the shepherd that has brought us to the pastures. It could be a hundred different sins, but each of us have experienced what it's like to be a sheep in need of restoration. We've chosen to ignore our shepherd. We followed our own sinful desires and passions, and we've ended up flipped over, helpless. See, that's what Adam did in the garden. He let his guard down, and he didn't rebuke the serpent with his lies, and he flipped himself and all of humanity over into helplessness and eventual death. That's what Israel did in the promised land. They got fat on the gifts of the Lord and they forgot the Lord. They didn't do what God called them to do. And so God flipped them out of the promised land and put them into exile and into judgment. That's what we've all done. We've laid down in the coziest spots. We've let our wool get overgrown and caked with sin. We've grown fat from overindulgence of our sinful desires. And we're stuck. We're unable to restore ourselves, unable to get back on our feet. But the good news of God's word is that the Lord is a good shepherd that restores the sheep. Jesus tells us in Luke 15 of the parable of the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go after the one helpless sheep. Jesus says, what what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on its shoulders and he's rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Did you hear those words? Not only does he go after the lost sheep, that's me and you. But when he finds it, he grabs it, he lays it on its shoulders and he's rejoicing. Jesus doesn't come back after us with an angry rant, snatching us with his crook, grabbing us by the collar, and giving us an earful on the way back to the flock about how much work it's been to take care of him. He's the kind shepherd. He doesn't berate us. He doesn't make a terrible example of us. He seeks us out. He hunts us. He goes for us. He goes where we are. And he restores us. He writes us. And he carries us back rejoicing. That's the picture of what Christ has done for his people. He has sought us out rather than leaving us flipped over for dead. He comes to us being born of a woman, having the fullness of human nature, living the sinless life that we should have lived and died in our place. He's been flipped into the grave so that we might be restored to life. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the shepherd that David was worshiping, the restoring shepherd. And so do you, do you have him as your shepherd? If you do, then you can praise him like the psalmist who said in Psalm 56, 13, you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling that I may walk before God in the light of life. If he's restored you, then praise him and walk before him in the light of life, the paths of righteousness in which he leads us for his name's sake. Don't wander again into the dark paths of sin. Stay in His righteous path, singing His praises and worship our restoring God. And if you don't have Him as your shepherd, then won't you come to Him? 
What better shepherd could you wish for? He's meek and lowly and he rejoices when his lost sheep come home. He will rejoice when you come into his fold. He will carry you when you cannot walk and he will restore you when you're lost and helpless and you, he will be your shepherd forever. Believe in this good shepherd. Hear of Jesus' work on behalf of his flock and trust that he really is the good shepherd that lays down his life for and thereby restores the sheep of his flock. Next, I'd like for us to move on to verse 4 and spend the rest of our time looking at how we can be fearless in the valleys. We can have fearlessness in the valleys of life. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Shepherds often have to drive their flocks through valleys, especially as seasons change, to get to fresh pastures and to good water. And these valleys can be scary, be dark craggy ravines that threaten your footing and provide much less line of sight to see dangers, right? There can be thorny thickets in which predators can hide. There can be darkness that seems to last a lot longer because the sunshine is hidden by the mountains. Let's think a little bit about these valleys. Sometimes we can be given the false impression that the Christian life is just experienced moving from one mountaintop to the other. And in one sense, that's true. We will in our lives have moments of punctuated experiences of God's grace that are so pleasant, so satisfying that it might be described as mountaintop experiences. But what we often forget is that every mountain peak is separated by a valley. To get to the higher ground, you have to start down in the lower and each of us has felt what these valleys feel like. We experience different valleys in this life, different terrain, but the temptations within the valleys are the same. When the trials of valleys come, when the pressure is applied, we can respond in similar ways. Right? We can seek to try in some sort of fleshly escape, right? some sort of indulgence to medicate our fear. Maybe alcohol. Maybe food, entertainment, sensuality, anything to get my mind off the valley. Maybe the valleys make us angry and we blame it on the other sheep around us. It's not my fault. If they would have just listened to what I've said, this wouldn't have happened. Or maybe we get jealous. We look at our valley and we look at that sheep's valley over there. Man, their road looks a lot easier to travel than mine. I don't deserve this. Why can't I have that? God must not be good if he would withhold that good valley to me. Or maybe you're the kind of sheep that gets worried. What if this valley goes on forever? I can't see the end of it. What if I can't get back to work? What if I can't pay the bills? What if the sickness gets worse? What if the report comes back negative? What if, what if you spin yourself down a spiral? In stress, in times of valleys, 
we're all like sheep. We're tempted to get confused and fidgety and restless and anxious and make reckless decisions. We fear because we can't see our shepherd right in front of us. We can't feel him in the moment. And we don't think we can hear his voice anymore. And we're terrified. But David faithfully proclaims that we don't have to fear the valley because the shepherd is with us. We have our Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He's with us on the mountaintops and especially in the valleys. He's with us when we're growing in holiness and our wool is sparkling white. And He's with us when we've soiled ourselves in the sinful mud of this world again. He's with us when we feel the nearness of Him beating in our chest. And He's with us whenever we feel cold and distant from Him. He's with us when we're faithful in prayer and when we're faithfully following closely on the heels of our shepherd. And He's with us when we've neglected Him for far too long and we've fallen behind and feel distant from our shepherd. See, poor and fragile sheep like us need to remember that we don't merely have a good shepherd who's over there. We don't have a good shepherd who's outside of us. We have to remember we have a good shepherd who's with us because He's in us. Every believer is promised and granted the presence of God's very own Holy Spirit to reside within us, who seals us for the day of reckoning, who guides us into paths of righteousness, who restores us and confirms us into His sheepfold. sheepfold. The Spirit reminds us that we've been adopted, that we've been brought into God's very own household. That's why He's called the Spirit of Adoption in Romans. He helps us to pray when we don't even know what to pray for. He helps us to choose right when we're tempted by evil. He he helps us to sense God's good pleasure when His smiling providences are all around us. And He sustains us through the dark trials of valleys so that we can hold on and so that we can be held on to until the very end. In fact, because God is with us, Not only do we not have to fear any evil, but the valleys actually become transformed. The valleys actually work for our good. The godliest saints that you know will probably tell you that the times of the darkest valleys in this life have been the most fruitful for their souls. God often lays beneath the valley floor a gold mine of spiritual lessons if we would take the time to reflect and dig a little. Let me explain some of the ways that these evil evil situations like valleys can be mysteriously used by our Good Shepherd for our good. Some of these ways are adapted from a work that Thomas Watson wrote. It's a Puritan little book published today called All Things for Good. If you promise to read it, I will gladly buy you a copy. It's very, very good. He gives scores of reasons about how all things work together for our good. I'll only give you nine this morning. Nine ways that God can use the evil of valleys for our good. Number one, because our shepherd is with us, Valleys work for our good by reminding us what sin remains within us. Valleys work for our good by teaching us 
and reminding us what sin remains within us. They have a profitable way in the mysterious working of God of revealing the remaining corruption that lingers within our hearts. We're often tempted to think that we're actually much better, we're much holier in this life than we actually are. And all we need is our tongue to get us in trouble again because we were overworked that day and hungry. Right? Or we get grumpy because we're not being able to sleep enough. Or we get short with people because we're rushed and we're late and people are impinging upon us. Whatever the circumstances are, stressful valleys become opportunities for us to be reminded again of the remaining sinfulness within us, which can work for our good if it drives us back to Christ. Secondly, valleys can help show us what sin remains, but they also teach us the bitterness of such sin. Valleys remind us of the bitterness of such sin. If we see that our own sin has brought us low, has humbled us, then we can again be reminded of how vigorously sin should be avoided. God is good to remind us how bitter sin actually is, that we might redouble our efforts to avoid such bitterness of soul. Right? Tasting the bitter herbs of the forbidden pasture is a good warning to the sheep that begin to wander off again. Third, valleys work for the good of God's sheep by conforming us to Christ. Valleys in God's providence can conform us to Christ. Christ, Scripture says, was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He bled. He wept. His head was crowned with thorns. Do we think that we would be crowned with roses? It is good to be like Christ. He was brought low and made to drink the bitter cup. And we too are sometimes made to be low. To die on our crosses. To make ourselves nothing for the sake of the kingdom. When we're made to go through these humbling valleys. And they can make us more like Christ. Watson says that the valleys of Affliction are like the medicine that God uses to carry off our spiritual diseases. And thereby our shepherd can use valleys to conform us more to Christ. Number four, valleys can work for our good because they make way for our comfort. Valleys make way for our comfort. The valleys of this life leave us in need of consolation, of comforting. See, if we only had to walk on streets of gold in the midday sun of this life, if everything was always perfect and wonderful, then we would know nothing of God's comfort. We would know nothing of our shepherd's tenderness and of his merciful consolation for the poor and the needy. If it were not for times like Psalm 42, where David is crying out to God for help with his cast down soul, then David would not have the occasion to praise God for his comforting nearness like he is in Psalm 23. Valleys provide the occasion for God to be not only our creator, but our faithful sustainer. Not only our king, but also our 
high priest who can sympathize with us and relieve us of our woes and comfort us by his presence and care. Valleys can provide space in our lives for our good shepherd to shepherd us with his comfort. Fifth, valleys can work for our good because they help us to prize God's presence even more. Valleys can help us to prize God's presence even more. Some valleys feel like God has abandoned us, like He has deserted us. In God's mysterious will, He will on occasion withdraw our sense of the Holy Spirit's presence. And we can be tempted to believe that we are actually all alone. God will sometime withhold the manifestations of His favor, and it seems like He has veiled His face from us. And when we walk through such valleys, when we are moved to value God's sweet presence even more. And we will chase after His presence, and we will guard it and cling to it with zeal because we've gone through the valley. When we're bereft of God's presence, a feeling of His nearness, then we will fight all the harder to keep Him near. God has no better way to make us value His love by, than by withdrawing the sense of it for a little while. Additionally, if, we're, if it were not for these temporary valleys, these valleys of desertion where we feel deserted, then we would have no idea what Jesus was feeling when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, because we've tasted a little bit of this feeling of desertion, God grants us a little taste of the terror, of the horrible feeling that Christ has gone through for the sake of His people on the cross. That sense of desertion. And that further stokes our fires of love for Christ. God uses the valleys of desertion for our good because feeling a temporary absence of His company keeps us from taking for granted His holy presence, which we'd be tempted to do if that's all we'd ever experience. Valleys teach us to prize God's presence. Sixth, valleys can work for our good by making us better able to comfort others. Valleys can work for our good by, better make, by making us better at comforting others. This one's fairly evident if you've experienced it. Some of us have gone through terrible, terrible valleys. You have seen things and experienced things and felt things that you would not wish upon your worst enemies. And God has brought you through it. And He has comforted you in the valley. And He has been with you through it all. And the Bible says that one of the reasons that He comforts you through affliction is so that you can be ready to comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have been given by God. One of the best things for people to hear when they're going through a tough trial is that they're not alone. You're not alone. In fact, one of the ways that God shepherds His people, one of the ways that God comforts us 
It's by using other sheep in your lives as the means of you receiving His comfort. God will work His comfort into your heart through the means of other sheep. There are other sheep that have been through this valley before. And they can testify to the faithfulness of the Good Shepherd to lead them through. Others have gone through this trial and God has been faithful to comfort and preserve them and He will bring you through this trial as well. I've been through this valley. I've seen these rocks. And God was faithful to get me through. And He will do the same to you. You may have gone through a bitter valley in this life and you've been wondering for years, why would God let that happen? One reason might just be so that you can help guide others through the same valley. Your experience in the valley is just what has made you an expert guide for the other sheep that are coming behind you. God can turn your valleys into your good and the good of others in the flock so that you can comfort others with the comfort that He's given to you. Seventh, valleys work for our good because they loosen our hearts from the love of this world. They loosen our hearts from the love of this world. God will often use valleys to wake us up. Valleys can have an effect of rearranging our priorities. See, one minute we're worried about soccer practice and grocery lists and the transmission on the car and whatever else. And then you get the call. And then you hear the news. And then you get the diagnosis. Whatever the valley is, it rocks you. But in God's goodness, He uses that valley to make you take a step back and reevaluate what's actually important. Some of you can attest to this. You were really focused on something, really pursuing something, really devoted to something other than God Himself, and God in His goodness led you into a valley so that you'd recognize what is actually important. The valleys create opportunities for you to consider your soul and its relation to God. Sometimes it's a near-death experience or the death of a loved one or the end of a relationship or the crushing of whatever dream it was you were chasing. Whatever the valley, if it causes you to look to God and evaluate things according to His standard, then you should praise Him for that valley because it has been used for your good. And God is working in and through that valley. God can use valleys to loosen our hearts from the love of this world. Number eight, God uses valleys for the good of His sheep to drive them to prayer. God uses valleys for the good of His sheep to drive them to prayer. Some valleys come in the form of temptation. And if that valley causes us to cry out to God, then that valley has been used for our good. Other valleys reveal to us our actual inability and weaknesses. Maybe it's through sickness. Maybe it's through our, our inability to change a situation or to restore and mend a broken relationship. And those exposed weaknesses and inabilities become the occasion for us to cry out to the one who is actually able to bring about the desired change. Sometimes God will bring us to the end of our rope so that we will actually look to Him where we should have begun. 
And if that's what happens, whatever the valley was, God has used it for our good to drive us back to communion and dependence upon Him. God can use valleys to bring us back to prayer. Number nine. God can use valleys for our good and the good of the flock by your example within them. God can use valleys for our good and the good of the flock by the example of faithfulness in the midst of trials, in the midst of valleys. Christian experience and especially Christian history, church history, is full of examples of godly saints who persevered well in the midst of trials. And how God used that for the good of the church. In the early church, there was a pastor named Ignatius of Antioch. He was marched in chains to Rome to be executed for his faith. And his testimony of faithfulness in the valley of imminent death was a powerful example of courage that strengthened this little fledgling Christian movement. Another church father named Athanasius was exiled five times. And yet he never gave in to the temptation to modify the biblical doctrine of the Trinity that was put forth at the Council of Nicaea in 325. His example illustrates the importance of doctrinal fidelity at all costs, even when in a valley. Martin Luther had to hide away in a German tower for a whole year, which could have been soul-rending. Could you imagine? I think you can now. Quarantined for a whole year at a tower. But instead of using that time to pout and lament and cry the whole time, he got to work and he translated the New Testament into German so that the common people in Germany could read the New Testament for themselves for the first time. His example of diligence in the midst of a terrible valley is worthy of our emulation. Jonathan Edwards, one of the best theologians America has ever produced, was unjustly fired from his congregation in Massachusetts. But they decided they still needed a preacher. And so he stayed and preached for more than another year at that congregation that had fired him because he loved the people and they knew they needed to be fed. His example of how to serve and love and not let bitterness take root in your soul is an example to us in the midst of a valley. Many others have suffered terrible medical problems. Spurgeon had severe gout and depression. John Calvin had kidney stones and intestinal problems so bad that at the end of his life, he had to be carried and propped up on the pulpit because he couldn't walk anymore. Their examples, Spurgeon and Calvin, of how a faithful man can continue to serve the church even through the terrible valley of physical affliction is an example for us. And I'm sure in your own lives, you've seen believers suffer well during terrible valleys. And you've been encouraged by it. I've often sat by the side of a saint under a terrible load and noticed their godliness in the midst of it. It makes me say, I want that kind of faith. I want to be joyful in the midst of suffering. I want to be fervent and faithful in the midst of pain. I want to be selfless and concerned with others just like they are. I came to see them and they're asking about me. I want to be considerate and encouraging and thoughtful just like them. Have you known someone like that? 
Have you said something similar, seeing a godly saint go through trials like that? God has used their tough valley for our good so that we might have a living picture of what godliness under trial looks like. And so that we might emulate them when we go through the valleys. Those were nine ways that God can use your valleys for your own good and for the good of the flock. And so as I close this morning, I want to close with a final plea to those who are here who do not have the Lord as your shepherd. See, the Bible speaks in places of the whole world being a flock, and it's divided in the sheep and the goats. Some goats fancy themselves to be sheep. They prance around like the sheep. They go to church like the sheep. They dress and speak like the sheep. They give their money like the sheep. They even try and sound like sheep. But at root, they are still goats. And when goats go through this world and the valley of the shadow of death, they have an entirely different experience than the one I've described here, experienced by sheep. The valleys of this world that the goats go through are merely a slight foretaste of the future punishment and affliction they will have at the end of time. See, Christ says He will come and He will separate the sheep from the goats, and He will send the goats to an eternal, terrible place of punishment called hell. And so I urge you, don't wait any longer. Hear of the tender shepherding of our Lord and how He transforms valleys and seasons of trial into times of sweetness. How He promises His presence in the midst of darkness and how He guides by His staff. Because if you refuse to accept His offer, then you will feel the rod of His punishment forever. And for us believers... I'd encourage us by remembering that the worst possible valleys in this life are far less than we deserve. They're far slighter than we perceive. And as Paul reminds us, they are far surpassed by the weight of glory that God is preparing for us in His presence forever. That's our Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Holy Father and God of all peace, our shepherd. We praise you and thank you for the work that you do, that you have done, and that you will do. That you have promised never to leave us or forsake us. That you've promised to work all things together for our good. Help us to trust you in the midst of our valleys. And to honor you in all that we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, It is well with my soul.